Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to have you here. My name is Matt. I'm a pastor here of Tri-City Church, and really glad that you have uh, come to join us on this kickoff Sunday. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do right now what we tend to do every Sunday, uh, which is to sing a little bit, to worship God through uh, song, and also then to hear from him through his word. We just think that's one of the most helpful things we can do is, is to hear what God has to say about himself, about us as human beings. And so we're going to do that. Uh, normally, we kind of work through books of the Bible little by little, uh, but today we're going to jump down. We're going to land in Acts 17. Uh, if you have a Bible, you could turn there now. Uh, if not, don't worry, it'll be up on the screen. Uh, but I'd like to start with a word of prayer, and then we will see what God has for us this morning uh, through the Bible. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, thanks so much for this day. Thank you, God, that uh, it's the beginning of, of a new year in many ways, uh, school and ministry and many new rhythms of life. Uh, God, I pray for everyone here. I pray, God, that you would be leading us into a healthy rhythm of life. God, that through our understanding of who you are, God, that we might have a greater sense of peace in our lives. And I pray that that would be the case now. As we turn to your word, God, I pray that, that we would have ears that are open to hear what you are saying. God, that we would come to understand uh, ourselves more and you more. And I pray especially, Lord, that you would, uh, you would speak to us in a helpful way in spite of my own sin, in spite of my own failings. Uh, God, that this would be a really fruitful time. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the part that we're parachuting into in the book of Acts uh, is, I think, a fitting part for our day-to-day -day because it's, as I said, the beginning of a ministry year. It's also a time when many of us may be uh, coming to grasp with whether, you know, what it is that we think about when we think about the church or Christianity or God. And this, uh, this brief scene is kind of a window into the beginning stages of Christianity. It's at a time when uh, the world was, uh, no, not many people really knew about Jesus, uh, Christianity had really begun in Jerusalem, and as Jesus was there and, and lived and died and then went back up to heaven, he told all of his followers, look, go out into the world. Go and tell them about me. Bring the good news of my name to, to all the world. That's what they did. The initial missionary journeys went to all the major cities around the Mediterranean. And one guy in particular, uh, Paul, was one of these main missionaries. And our, our scene for today is when Paul visits Athens. Now, Athens wasn't really a place where he was going to plant a church. He was kind of passing through. But in his time there, uh, he, he just does what Paul always does. He's a guy who just loves to engage with people, talk with people, kind of challenge them on what they believe, tell them about his faith in Jesus. And so as Paul enters Athens, he notices that this is a place that doesn't yet know about the God of the Bible, and yet they have a lot of gods, though. It's filled with, with things that you would worship, idols and temples, in fact, uh, there's a quote that it came across from a, a Spartan general named Pausanias. And as he entered Athens, here's what he said. It's easier to meet a god or goddess on the main street of Athens than to meet a man. So you can imagine this kind of ancient boulevard. Everything's marble in Greece. Even the pens are marble. And they had uh, all these idols everywhere. Because they were, they were people who loved to, to worship. And so Paul started to talk with people in the marketplace. And eventually, kind of the city um, cultural elite... They heard him talking, and they invited him to come to a place called the Areopagus, because the Areopagus was where you would, you would share new ideas and people would, would hear it. Uh, the Areopagus was a place, but also a council. It, it's still a place to this day. Here's a picture of it. It's kind of like a low mountain there in Athens, 
And um, if you were standing on that rock outcropping, I think at the time they would have had like a platform, people would have fallen off, but they, but they would all be gathered there. If you were to stand on that rock and turn around, you would see uh, this, which is kind of the backside of the Acropolis. So it's, it's very near the center of the city. And this was a place that still exists, but also it was a council of people. They were kind of like the, the cultural gatekeepers. And they loved to hear about new ideas. It was kind of like their, their pastime. In fact, this is what it says just before our text in Acts 17.21. It says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That was the sport of the day. You can imagine like today a university uh, kind of lounge or a coffee shop where people just love to banter about new ideas, new ideologies. And so Paul was invited there to speak. It was kind of like a TED talk where he had like a brief window of time and he got to just share what he, what he thought, what he believed. They were interested. Tell us what you're talking about, this Jesus. We haven't heard of him before. What God are you talking about? And so we're going to follow through with Paul's address, him speaking to this Athenian council, and we are going to discover, or maybe hear, for, uh, hear anew, the foundational uh, tenets of the faith, about who God is according to the Bible, but also we're going to hear a lot about what it means to have a true and helpful worship in our lives. So, let's turn to Paul's um, initial address. The first couple verses here in Acts 17, 22 is where we start. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. We'll stop there. So, Paul begins by stating one obvious truth about their culture, and then states something that was not so obvious. The obvious thing was that they were a very religious people. I mean, all over the place, icons, deities, temples, they were clearly a people who loved to worship. That was something that was very, very obvious. But the thing that was was not so obvious was that for all of their enthusiasm about worship, there was a lack of certainty that kind of undermined the whole thing. And that's because as Paul was walking, he saw an altar, and instead of like a bird or an animal or some sort of idol that they would worship, there was nothing just inscribed on it in Greek, would have been to the unknown God. And that's because the Greeks were so intent on making sure they had all their bases covered that they figured there is some God they didn't know, and so let's make an altar to that God. We'll also worship him or her or it, whatever it is. And what Paul's saying is, is look, how, how can you have any real hope or comfort or joy in this God you're worshiping if you don't even know who he is? I mean, doesn't, isn't there a disconnect there that everyone can see? I mean, come on, Greeks. You're supposed to be the birthplace of civilization, but you haven't got this together. It's no wonder that you're no longer a world power and that your economy is in the toilet and that you can't win a world cup. You, you need to know what you believe if you're going to have any success. And so he's kind of, he's pushing them on this. But what we should recognize is that the Athenians are not that much different than us to this day because we also have a whole host of things that we worship in our lives. Now, worship is a very churchy term. We use it a lot, but really what it means is that there's something in our lives that we live for, something that, we, that gives us purpose or joy or meaning. It could be anything, big or small. We fill our lives with all sorts of objects of worship. In fact, I was listening to uh, or watching, my wife and I watched this show. Uh, it's called Amazing Interiors. It's pretty amazing. And, um, <laughs> and in it, there's these people who have, you see the houses from the outside, it just looks like a regular house, and you go inside, and it's crazy, they've spent millions of dollars inside their house, and uh, in one of these houses, there was a guy who had filled his home with cats, which doesn't, 
doesn't sound that amazing. You probably have an aunt who has like a house full of cats. But what he did, he also, he customized his home. So he had catwalks suspended above all the rooms with tunnels between each room. He had like spiral slides and staircases. He had these bridges, these arcs over big parts of the room. He loved cats, obviously, 22 cats in his home. And he lived for these cats. They were his joy. They were his purpose. So much so that he told the story of, like he had a soaker tub and he didn't want cat hair to get in it. So he had a plexiglass top made for the tub. And so the first day that he puts in this plexiglass top, he goes off to work. And of course, 22 cats running around, one of them hits the faucet. And so the water pours out of the faucet, hits the plexiglass, goes down through all the cat tunnels he's built, $40,000 worth of damage to his home. And the insurance company does not cover cats. So he's telling the story and he's smiling. He's, he's laughing about this. Oh, these crazy cats. Oh, they almost ruined my home. You can tell that this was, he loved them so much that even though he could cause that much damage, it didn't matter to him. That very clearly is an object of worship. That this man has delight and joy and purpose in caring for his cats. And the truth of the matter is that we all have things like that in our lives. We, we may not have that many animals in our home, but we have something, some reason to get up in the morning, some sense of joy and comfort about the future because of something that is in our life. And it can be anything, big or small, but that, that gives us purpose. In a real sense, we are, we are worshiping in that act of engaging with that thing. The other thing that is sort of true for us as well is that there are many of us who, who say that we know God, who may claim to be Christians, but the truth of the matter is that there are big gaps in our understanding of, of who God really is. And that in, in a similar way, just as the Athenians were worshiping a God they did not know, many of us are doing that in some way in our lives. We don't really know the God of the Bible. We say we follow him, but we aren't, we aren't really acquainted with who he is, his characteristics, what he's done in the past, his plans for the future. And so Paul, standing before this group of Athenians, he knows this to be true. He sees that they are hoping in all sorts of other things other than God, the true God of the Bible, and also that in many ways they don't really know what their worship is about. But he hasn't come to criticize them. He's come to help. He wants to make known to them the God that they do not know. And so in the rest of his address, that's really what he does. And in doing this, he, he kind of asks and answers really three foundational questions, questions that we are going to also ask and answer. Uh, who is God? Who are we? And then in light of that, how should we live? So we're going to work through his passage bit by bit, beginning with number one. First question, who is God? Verses 24 and 25, Paul says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So right from the start, the answer that we have who is God? God is the creator and the sustainer of life. This is a foundational truth of Christianity. You cannot know the God of the Bible unless you know him to be both creator and sustainer. It's not really a secret. The very first verse in the Bible says, God created the heavens and the earth. It's, it's a key to our understanding of who he is. But the point that Paul is making is that there in the midst of all those thousands of other deities, there needs to be a God who is, who is greater and grander than those who are worshipped in a statue. See, they had all sorts of gods that they would find hope and comfort in. But what he's saying is that without a God who is the creator, who is above all things, there is no real decent answer to why we exist, 
to why there's a world at all. And if you're worshiping a God who is, who is inlaid with gold leaf that you mined out of a hill, then that God is probably not the one who created the universe. We see this in verse 24. The Lord does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, of course, these days we have much more complex and sophisticated theories about the origin of life. But they all struggle with the same question. And that is, why is there something rather than nothing? How is it that we got from nothing to to something? And to that something being the entire universe? This is the central question that everyone from science to theology were struggling with. Trying to understand why it is that, that there is a universe at all. There's a great book uh, that I read by a guy named Jim Holt. He's not a believer. He's a contributor to The New Yorker. And he wrote a book called Why Does the World Exist? And that's, that's what he wanted to find out. He spent a couple of years interviewing all sorts of people from uh, the academic elite, right? The physicists, the cosmologists, people of religious faith. And the whole time in all the conversations that he was having, he wanted to find the, how to bridge that gap. He wanted to find the, the proof or the formula the equation, the rational argument to get from nothing to something. And of course, he, he didn't find it. He, he had all sorts of philosophical explanations, but he always struggled to get to that essential bridging that gap. There was one conversation he had, which I thought was especially helpful in terms of the value of scientific explanation. He was talking to John Updike, who's a, is a novelist, kind of intellectual philosopher guy, and he was asking him about the, uh, the scientific explanations for the origin of the universe and whether they are convincing. And Updike said this. He said, well, not entirely. And that's the embarrassment for science. Science aspires, like theology used to, to explain absolutely everything. But how can you cross this enormous gulf between nothing and something? And not just something, a whole universe. So much. I mean, the universe is very big. Ugh, he said. I mean, it's beyond imagining squared. So here's what it comes down to. To bridge the gap between nothing and something is always going to be a step of faith. Whether you come at it from a scientific or a religious point of view, if you have some conviction, some sense of clarity about how the universe began, then you are a person of faith. And a scientific theory about how things began doesn't actually account for the way that the universe is. Not fully. I mean, just think about some of the things that are true about us and the universe around us. I mean, if, if we are here because it's survival of the fittest, then why do we sacrifice ourselves for others? Why do we celebrate people who sacrifice their lives for people they don't even know? I mean, why, why are we like that? And if the universe happened by chance, why do we long for meaning in our lives? Why are we looking for a purpose? Why is it difficult for us to get out of bed unless we have some sense of, of meaning in our lives? I mean, this is why people look to God. But it's not enough to simply fill in the gaps with some God that you don't know. That's what the Athenians did. They said, man, there's some things that we really don't understand about, about the universe, about ourselves. Let's, let's attribute that to this unknown God and we'll worship him and that way all our bases will be covered. But that's not enough to actually answer our questions. 
But what about a God that we can know? Not fully, not exhaustively, not to the point that we can bridge that gap in our own mind between nothing and something, but a God who has revealed himself to us, both in the pages of scripture and in the pages of history. A God who has revealed himself in the sending of his son to come and live among us. See, that would be a God who is both creator, meaning he is self-existent. He has the power and the magnificence, the glory to birth from his own being a universe and a people. It would answer some of the big questions that we have about the universe. And it would give us a meaning for our own lives. So Paul's answer is beginning, who is God? God is the creator. God is the sustainer of life and, and we can know him. But the second question turns the focus on us. Well then, who are we? If this is true, who are we? Verses 26 and 28, he continues. And he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. So this part's interesting because Paul begins with a reference to the biblical account of creation, but ends with a reference, a quotation of some Greek poets. So the the initial part that he references is probably Genesis 2-7, which says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is the details of how God actually made human beings. And you notice there that he doesn't just, he didn't just make our body, he also breathed into us a soul, a spirit. And this actually does help us understand human beings because we have things that are true of us that have nothing to do with our physiology. For example, we are, we are people with a conscience. We struggle with right and wrong. We, we want to do the right thing in many cases and we have a consciousness. We're aware of ourselves. The animal kingdom has none of that. And understanding that in God's creative, intimate breathing of life into us, that accounts for more of who we are. And beyond the original moment of creation, we also see that that Paul makes clear that God's involvement with humanity was both sovereign and caring, right? That the language there is he's determined allotted periods and boundaries. He kind of organized the world in such a way that we would yearn for God, that we we would seek him out, that we would try to find him. And even though we may at many times in our lives feel far away, we see there in verse 27 that he is actually not far from each one of us. And I'm wondering if that strikes a chord with, with anyone here. When I was a child, I, I didn't grow up as a Christian, but I do remember having this sense that there was, that there was a God out there, that there, was, that there was someone watching over me. And I would, I would pray. I didn't really know who I was praying to, but I was looking for some help and direction in life. It's really easy to, to brush that off as childish thinking. But no matter what the age, we do tend to look for patterns in our lives, don't we? We do tend to long for some sense of of coherence, of meaning and purpose. That's not just for the young. It's very rare that you find anyone who is really at peace with a sense of meaninglessness in their life. In fact, when we have a lack of purpose, we tend to wilt as human beings. We tend to spiral down into depression. But what Paul is saying is that there there is a God who made you, and more than that, he, 
he is intimately involved in your life. That that longing that you have for purpose is because in his creation of you, he has connected you to the greater purposes that he has for the whole universe. And to drive this point home, to the Athenians in particular, Paul quotes from some of their poets because he knows intellectuals love that sort of thing. So he quotes a couple of Greek poets. The first is Epimenides, who said, in him, that's in, in their sense of the divine, we live and move and have our being. And then Arutus, who said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, in both cases, they're not talking about the God of the Bible. They, they don't know him at all. But what Paul's point is that there's, there's this sense in humanity that we are somehow connected to the divine. And his, his point is that in the God of the Bible, we see why that connection exists. Here's another detail from the creation story in Genesis. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now that actually explains a lot. It explains why we are a people that, that create, why we love, why we pursue relationship, why we look for justice, why we forgive, why we, we show mercy. All of these things that again have nothing to do with our body, but have everything to do with, with who we are. It's the stamp of God upon us. We're like this because that's what God is like. That explains more of who we are because we understand him more. And so what Paul is really saying is, is God is the creator and sustainer of life. And who are we? Well, well we are his children. We are his offspring. We, we are a product of his creation. And that means that to understand ourselves more, we need to know him. But the third question then is how do we live in light of these truths, assuming that these things are true, what, what would God call us to as human beings? What would be best for us as human beings? Well, this is our last section, verses 29 to 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now here I think Paul's tone shifted. It's tough to know for sure, but just in the language that he's saying here, I think his, his tone would have shifted because what becomes clear is that Paul is, he's not just telling the Athenians, hey, here's some interesting things about God that you didn't know. It's not just some new ideas that I want you to think about. What he's really saying is, look, look, there is a God. We are a product of his creation, and that means that there is a right way to worship him. And you guys, you're doing it wrong. I mean, look what he says in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He goes right at their idolatry. What he's saying is what, what you're doing, it, it's not right. It's not the way that human beings should worship. It's not how we should live. He's saying, if there is a God who is the creator God, and there must be some, some way to bridge that gap, then his magnificence and his transcendence to be able to answer the big questions of our lives, to understand who we are as human beings, it doesn't make sense then to see that God as, as a statue. It falls apart. Where's the power? Where's the magnificence? How can you have certainty and hope in a God like that? There must be a creator, and that creator must be bigger and grander than any gold-bedazzled statue. We again can see his point, I think. We can see the inconsistency between drawing a sense of ultimate hope from something that is carved out of granite. 
But once again, if we're honest, I'd say that we are a lot like the Athenians in this way also. We may not have an idol in our home. We may, depending on our heritage. But all of us have at some point put something in our lives in the place of God. We all have fallen into this error of crafting for ourselves an object of worship, something we're looking to for the ultimate answers of our life, and yet it not really being able to deliver. I gave you cats as an example. I'm going to give you another one, a little less strange. Um, I listened to another interview with a man uh, named Ron Delsner. You probably don't know his name, uh, but Ron Delsner became one of the uh, biggest concert promoters in the world. Through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, if there was any big show, especially a rock show, he was probably the guy behind it. Uh, He would book the Beatles, Barbara Streisand, Simon and Garfunkel, Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, all those big shows. In fact, the big concerts in the park, in Central Park in New York, that, that was his idea. The half million people there, that was all those big shows. That was him. His, when he sold his company, it became Live Nation, one of the biggest companies still booking concerts. So this interview, he's in his 70s now, was looking back on his life. And Ron Delsner, let me tell you, he loved working in the music industry. He grew up as a kid from Queens, and he just, through his kind of hustle, made his way up to the top of the music industry, and he told story after story of closing down nightclubs with Billy Idol and just hanging out with Mick Jagger. He, he loved it. I mean, it was a radio interview, so I couldn't see his face, but it sounded like he was smiling, even to this day. But there, was a, there were a couple times when his tone shifted, and that was in both times when he spoke about his family. And I want to read to you his words. Here's what he said. Um, he, he finished telling the story about buying Billy Joel a car and how Billy Joel traded in for a motorcycle. And right after that, he said, look, he said, look, but I'm forgetting about my family. He said, I lost my daughter because of all of this. I mean, I didn't lose her, but I wasn't there for her like I should have been, like most people were. And my wife is the same way. I'm trying to catch up now, but it's, it's very hard. Then the interviewer kind of steered the conversation back to the rock and roll because he was more interested in that. But right at the end of the interview, right when they were wrapping up, he came back to it, almost like he needed to say it. And he was talking about this influence of his career on his family and he said this, look, this is, this is what we do. I tell my wife that this is the job. It's unfortunate that my wife, that, that we don't have the relationship we had. I mean, I feel it. It's really terrible for me to feel that way. I love her like crazy. She loves me, but it, it ruins lives. It ruins lives, but the business came first. Now, I don't think Ron Delsner would have ever described his career as an object of worship, but very clearly that's what he was looking to his entire life for for peace, for hope, for purpose. That's what he was living for. The next big gig, the next booking, the next bundle of money, it answered the big questions of his life for a time. And he sacrificed a lot for it. We all have things like that in our lives. We all have things that we live for in that way. But I want you to listen clearly to Paul's point. His point is not just that that is foolish. I mean, it is. It's foolish and sad that a man would sacrifice his family for for rock and roll no matter how big the show is. It's foolish. But Paul isn't just saying that it's foolish to worship something other than God. He's saying it's, it's wrong. He's telling the Athenians, look, the way that you're doing this, the way that you're living, the way that you're worshiping, it's wrong. If there is a God who is the creator, a God who sustains the entire universe, a God who made you, then he is in that rightful place. And to put anyone else there is wrong. The Bible calls it a sin. The Bible says that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. 
And with sin then comes judgment. If you look at verse 31, he says, There is a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Paul is saying to the Athenians, Look, I'm partly here because I want to warn you that in the way that you're living, there is a consequence that is coming. You're doing it wrong, and if you don't change your way, there will be a dire consequence for you. You know, if there's one thing that we don't love, it's when people tell us that we're wrong. I think probably back in Athens, it was still the case then. You could imagine that probably at this time was when people would start to shift a bit, start to get a bit uncomfortable, start to get a bit indignant. Who's this guy coming and telling us how we should live? None of us like that, right? This is why at dinner parties, we don't talk about religion or politics. Because at some point, two people get into a heated discussion and eventually someone's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're wrong. You're you're narrow-minded and there's a big scene and everyone feels awkward. And it's only hors d'oeuvres. You're like, we have to go through the whole rest of the evening like this? And then you get home and your wife's like, I told you not to talk about politics. Look, I don't know if you're uncomfortable or not. But, But whether you feel awkward about the Bible telling all of humanity that, that we don't live rightly, that we don't honor God perfectly, you have to admit that there is something wrong with humanity. I mean, just look at our world. It's filled with a beauty and a complexity that has every hallmark of a divine hand, but it's marred. It, it's, it's scarred by corruption and greed and violence. The world over, everywhere we look, and, and Many of the ways that we explain that is to say, well, it's the systems that are wrong, right? It's, it's the unequal distribution of wealth. If we could fix that, things would be better. It, it's, it's because not everyone has access to the basic needs of life, like food and education and, and opportunity, healthcare. It's because those who are in power are corrupt. And of course, that's all true. But my question is, why are things that way? What is the common denominator all over the world in terms of all of that corruption, It has to be us. We are the only ones who are present in all of those situations. We human beings are the ones that are selfish, that are prideful, that take advantage of each other. We are the root cause. We are all in the same continuum of sin. Some more, some less. But none of us are living as we should. None of us are loving the people around us as we should. And none of us are worshiping as we should. And there must be justice for all that wrongness or else what kind of a universe do we live in? There has to be an answer for the evil that is out there. And the Bible says, this passage is saying there is. There is. There is a day of judgment when all will be judged righteously and the consequence of sin is death. Death forever. Death for all those who are found in their sin because of our pride, because of our cheating, because we turn our backs on God and say we're going to do it our way. Because of our false objects of worship. It's death. Did you notice that that's not where this passage ends? That's not Paul's final point. In the very last bit of of verse 31, it's not death that we end on. It's actually a resurrection from death. Do you see that in verse 31? It says that he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's new life that Paul ends on and it's in the person of Jesus that him is speaking about the only person who has been raised by God from death and that's Jesus. That's why Paul came. 
That's why he's going out into the world, even there in Athens. He wants them to know who God is, but, but even more than that, he wants them to know about God the Son, who came to make a way for them to have hope beyond this life into eternity. It's not just that God made us. It's not just that we are to worship him. It's not just that we've made a mess of everything. It's that God doesn't expect us to clean everything up. That in his grace and his love, he has sent Jesus to do that for us. Jesus, who is God revealed in human flesh, who came to live the perfect life that we could not live, and then to be sent to death because of his claims to be God and to be able to forgive sins. And in that death, because he was both man and God, infinite, an infinite capacity to take the condemnation of all humanity upon himself, he atoned, he made up for our sin. And though he died, he did not stay dead. Three days later, the resurrection, as historically verifiable an event as any in history, he came back to life, thus ensuring, giving us what that word says is comfort, assurance, that when we look to him now, we are not looking in vain. We're not looking because we don't really know what else to believe in. We are looking to a God who has revealed himself in every way that is necessary for us to have hope and joy. And he said, then follow me. Because as you follow me and you live for me, then you will get all of those things that you're longing for. You will have a hope and a purpose in this life and beyond. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look, we all have objects of worship in our lives. You may have cats, that's fine. The Bible isn't against cats, it's okay. But what it's saying is that for all of those things that we have in our lives that we enjoy, that's great, but there should be a place that's reserved solely for God, that we live for ultimately, that we find our hope in fully. And for us to have that hope, it does require faith, but not a blind faith, not an irrational faith, a faith that is rooted in some of the most glorious and wonderful answers to the deepest questions of our life. Who is God? Well, God is the creator and sustainer of life. Who are we? Well, we are his children. And how should we live? Well, we should live for him because it's in him that we receive everything that we need, that there is no burden placed upon us to be perfect. There is no cleaning up our lives and then coming to God for forgiveness. It's an open, arm, open arms of the one who made us and the one who is saying, in me, in Jesus, you will find everything you need. You will be eased of your burdens and you will have a hope that goes beyond this life. That's, that's really why Paul came to Athens, to have that brief 15 minutes to, to explain. And I'll tell you that the response was varied. Some mocked him, some criticized him, but there were a few that, that came to faith and that said, no, I, I want that. I need that. And my hope this morning is that for those of you who have a faith, that it would have been strengthened. And that for those that have questions about the Christian faith, that you would have got some answers. And we would love to give you more of those in conversation afterwards. But let's close our time in prayer, and then we'll respond. Lord God, thank you so much for this, this time. Thank you for the Bible that pulls no punches. God, in it, you just tell us exactly what we need to hear. And I pray, God, that it would have been um, helpful for everyone here. God, I do pray that you would open our eyes and our heart to understand you more, to understand ourselves more. I pray, God, for each one here that, that we would have a confidence in life, a sense of stability and hope and joy that would go beyond ourselves and into eternity future. And Jesus, I pray that, 
that each one of us would truly know you. And in that, we would have great comfort and joy. And I thank you, God, for this time. I thank you for the opportunity to celebrate afterward. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed work in each of our hearts and bless us greatly. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.